0: welcome to the new books network
1: hello welcome to the mobilities and methods series the series is hosted by the new books network in association with the mobilities and methods lab at the university of illinois at chicago the mobilities and methods lab and new books network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Alize Rujan. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Luna, the Catherine A. McCarthy Assistant Professor in Women's Studies in the Department of Anthropology and the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program at Tufts University. We'll be talking about her book, Love and the Drug War, Selling Sex and Finding Jesus on the Mexico-US border, published by the University of Texas Press in 2020. I'd also like to add that the book was recently awarded the Ruth Benedict Book Prize by the Association of Queer Anthropology. So congratulations, and thank you very much, Dr. Luna, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Aliza, for having me today. And yeah, I'm so, so happy to be here.
1: Wonderful. Um, So, I'd like to start off by familiarizing our listeners with the location of your book. Could you tell us a little bit about Reynosa and La Zona, and what drew you to these places and this project?
0: Sure. So, Reynosa is a Mexican border city in northern Mexico in the state of Tamaulipas and so it's south of texas um the closest border city is hidalgo texas and then on the other side of that mcallen texas and um la zona de tolerancia um is, or the tolerant zone is a regulated prostitution zone surrounded by walls um it was built in 1949 on the outskirts of the city There used to be a kind of a more traditional red light district in the center of the city, um, which was really booming at a certain historical, certain particular historical moments. Um, But the the old red light district was destroyed in a fire, and many people in Reynosa believe that it was destroyed on purpose because there was a big debate about um, whether it should be moved or not. Um, And basically, locals wanted. This, these, um, this area of vice to be removed from the city center. Um, so this zona was built um, on the outskirts of the city, and walls were built around it. Um, and sex workers there in Reynosa would uh, cater to a variety of both local clients as well as people crossing, men crossing from the from the border from the United States. So the way that I came to this project was when I was a graduate student. I was writing, writing my master's thesis at the University of Chicago, and I um, wrote about the Ciudad Juarez femicides, um, and I was really struck by how these women were being, you know, raped, mutilated, murdered, dumped in public space, and then local discourses were blaming them for their own murders and also asking, like, what was she doing out so late at night, Um so insinuate and also these local discourses would often ask if um, if these women had or, or suggest these women had double lives as sex workers. Um, so this really got me interested into the in the question of the whore stigma and why it is that people who are are sex workers or who are assumed to be sex workers, um, why their lives don't matter Um and it turned. I mean, a lot of the people from the Ciudad Juana's feminicides weren't not even sex workers. So, um, so this is what got me interested in, to, in the idea of working class women's sexuality in Mexican border cities and um, how that kind of intersects with um, racism and um, other kinds of structural inequalities.
1: Yeah, and your book makes really, very important interventions uh, on these topics. Uh one of those interventions is to bring conversations on borderlands together with those on moral economies of sex work and drug trade, which is you know something that you mentioned as um, a point of um, interest that drew you to these borderlands. Um, and I'm wondering how does morality expand our understanding of borderlands in general and of the Mexico-U.S. border in particular?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the political economies of Mexican border cities are in great part shaped by the U.S.-Mexico relationship. Um, For example, the prohibition of drugs and prostitution as well as you know, alcohol during the prohibition era, for example, in the United States has historically created a demand for those kinds of services and goods in Mexico. um, And that has greatly impacted the landscapes and the kinds of jobs available in Mexican border cities. And then, of course, the demand for lower cost labor with fewer regulations, right, which has been facilitated by neoliberal policies like NAFTA. And I'm using the concept of the moral economy, which is basically in its broadest definition, the way that moral values become attached to economic behavior. And I set up the book in part by looking at the moral economies attached to sex work and drug work, um, looking at some similarities and differences between them. And so I show some similarities between these kinds of work. They both require secrecy, foster queer intimacies, and are seen to be easy money, even though they are dangerous and difficult work. But there's also a way in which these moral economies are also gendered, um, while drug work could be seen as cool and masculine in some ways, and many little boys wanted to be nauticals when they grew up. Um, Ultimately, being a sex worker was seen as the worst kind of woman that one could be. So I think that these conceptions of morality can expand our notions of thinking about borderlands in general and the U.S.-Mexico border in particular um, because it helps us to think about the social meanings that ultimately get attached to these economic behaviors. Um, And I think that, and of course the U.S.-Mexico border is the case that I know the best about, but I can imagine that similar things happen in other borders, especially when there's great inequality and yet great intimacy between the two countries. And I think that a lot of, the policies that actually create borders and that make up borders are already tied to conceptions of morality, right? So you can think about things like um, many of our policies um, that have led to the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, in part to keep like bad hombres out and to keep them from rape- raping women, right? Or policies prohibiting sex work and alcohol consumption in the United States at certain historical eras. Eras; those are already kind of morally charged, right? And then the way that they impact the border cities themselves um, end up being morally charged too in different ways.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and I love that you bring up the fact that you know the literature about moral economy should actually be something that's very gendered. You know, it's not just about this abstract understanding of morality. Um, yeah, you know, and on that note, you know, you talk about, you take up other um, other issues such as motherhood, love, and obligation, and, you know, you show that it's not only about um, sex work, like it's not, these issues not only intersect with sex work, but also um, they figure into missionary work and drug trade, which is, you know, maybe not a connection that um, comes to folks intuitively. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about these complex relationships.
0: Sure, sure. Um, So I start out with this emic conception of obligar or to obligate, um, which is a verb that I found people use, the the people I was working with use the most to talk about the relationships between sex workers and their pimps. and there was usually coercion in these relationships and sometimes violence, sometimes deception. Um, but there was also often also love too. And, you know, many sex workers and pimps created families together. And there were some instances when sex workers chose, their, chose to leave their families to go with their pimps. Um, and so in part, I want to kind of complicate this idea that like families are good, pimps are bad, um, which you know other scholarship does that too. Um, but then the pimps often use sex workers' ties to their children to further obligate them. And so I use this kind of mixture of love and obligation, coercion and violence as a stepping off point to more largely theorize the different kinds of relationships that I see in this book. Um, so the relationship between sex workers and their families, for example, the relationships between sex workers and missionaries, um and I think that a lot of these kinds of dynamics end up happening also in the drug trade and in missionary work, um, but it's also kind of a, a particular way of seeing, right? A, a way of seeing um, the kinds of obligations, the, the gendered obligations tied to these social worlds um, that people are, are engaged in um, and whether, so for missionaries, you know, they have certain obligations to God, certain mission obligations to their Christian publics. Um, The people working in the drug trade also have obligations to their family members too, right, that motivate their their actions as well.
1: On that note, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the research process. I'm especially, you know, intrigued by how you made these connections with, you know, all these um, different kinds of people that make up this moral economy, such as missionaries or pimps um or sex workers or you know even their families so yeah if you could tell us a little bit about how you um gained insight into their lives
0: sure so um when i first arrived there i didn't really I didn't really know anyone in Reynosa. Um, My parents attend a small Mexican-American church in San Antonio, Texas, and they have a sister church in Reynosa. And so on my first trip, I stayed at an orphanage that was run by some missionaries that those people knew. Um, And someone at that, a missionary at that orphanage knew this missionary who ended up um, being a really important contact for me. And um, through her, I was able to meet other missionaries and also quite a few sex workers. And th- so through some of the sex workers, I met some of the other people. And I also stayed with a family that I had met online um, on one of these um, websites that you can use to like stay with someone in a city. Um, it was pre Airbnb when people were doing this for. <laughs> I don't know, to meet friends. Um, and so it was really through those initial contacts that I got to see all of these different pe- pieces of these worlds and um, through kind of building relationships with those initial people um, that I that I met others.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And you know we in some ways, we see these sort of interstitial spaces between borders, or sex work or missionary work and I think what makes your book really rich is that it is located about the forms of relating in between um, and you know throughout the book you conceptualize these in betweenness in triads which I personally read as a methodological move even though you know it wasn't um, featured in the book as a methodology so I'm wondering how thinking through triads shape your understanding of life in Reynosa and whether, you know, you could interpret it or posit it as a methodology.
0: That's probably accurate. Is having two once, sides.
1: Once, one Oof. second, Sarah. I oh, think, shit. yeah, I think it's just, yeah, it wasn't recording on the, yes. yeah, Okay. It's okay, we can just cut this out. Let's just take like a little (laughs) break and then
0: continue. So yeah, that's an excellent question. And I absolutely do think that that's accurate, that it was a methodological move, even though maybe I wasn't really even thinking of it in those terms at the time. Um, But on the one hand borders are often thought of as having two sides and i wanted to complicate that in part by looking at things in groupings of three um, and this was in part inspired by some scholarship by linguistic anthropologists and others inspired by Ch- charles sanders purse um, who really has a triadic approach to understanding meaning making first in the relationship between the sign the object and the interpretant um And also, I was looking at kind of polyamorous conceptions, too. Um, I argue that missionaries sought to forge love triads between themselves, missionaries, and God. Um, And so I use this kind of polyamorous concept of the triad and of compersion, which is supposed to be the opposite of jealousy, um, to show how missionaries hoped and expected that each party on this triad would strengthen um, the relationship between the other two, and they would be kind of mediating each other's relationships, Um, and how the missionaries felt joy and pleasure when they saw evidence that sex workers and God were getting closer. Um, And so sex missionaries felt closer to God as they got to know sex workers, and they expected that sex workers would feel closer to God from spending time with missionaries. Um, And another key triad in the book um, is kind of the relationship between a sex worker, her child, and her pimp, which is part of the the triadic relationship that I use to to think about this concept of obligar, um which is something that has both love and violence um, in it. Um, and I think that, plenty i also think through plenty of other relationships in the book in in threes um and i think that it was conceptually productive in this case um i mean i don't want to necessarily like argue we need to always look at relationships triadically and replace the dyad or the triad Um, but i do think that it's a methodological move that reveals things that we might not otherwise see and pay attention to ways of how meaning is made in triadic ways sometimes and also how different people mediate each other's relationships too
1: yeah, that's a wonderful intervention and, you know, conventional ways in which um, borders are understood. Like I love, you know, of course, not everything could be taught in triads, but I love that you go um, beyond the binary. And, you know, another important intervention that you make is about the directionality, especially in the Mexico-US border. You know, you in the book, you show that um, there's this tendency to think um, in one direction, like from Mexico to the US, as like the ultimate direction of, you know, migration or movement or however you frame it. Uh, and you sort of like you turn it around, but not only turn it around, but show that it's not just uh, it's not just a linear directionality, so to speak. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that
0: sure, um, so yeah, it is kind of it's funny because whenever I end up in on panels or in conferences about migration having to do with the u s Mexico border, I'm usually the one person that's looking more at like my migrants from the u s going to Mexico than the other way around um but certainly and i mean even like the migration even mexican migration to the us historically was way more circular before the um the militarization of the border right um but also um i think that yeah the way that people from the united states migrate to mexico to um you know to to go to sex workers, to buy prescription medication, um, to go on vacation, to do missionary work. Those are all um, things that we don't really hear about or think about nearly as often. And then what was the other? So the the question is, um, how do the kind of thinking about how they kind of influence each other?
1: Exactly. Like, what do we gain by, you know, thinking of this migration or movement in sort of circular terms, in terms rather
0: than linear? Right, right. No, I think that's a yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that thinking about it in circular terms, instead of linear is really important, because it not only I think it's a better reflection of what happens. Um, Both in the case of people from Mexico migrating to the United States. um, I think many people would rather have circular migrations if it were possible. Um, It's because of the militarization of the US Mexico border and how it's become illegal, dangerous. Um, that people aren't able to kind of circularly migrate. And I think that people from the United States have been doing this also in terms of um, missionary work, going to the border to go to the dentist when, you know, we don't have a great healthcare system in the United States, um, and to get prescription medications. Also, there are a lot of um, people from the United States who um, retire in Mexico and there is a great back and forth over the the u s Mexico border for both sides. Um, but really it's it's the crossing of like capital that is allowed um and that's facilitated by our policies. but it's like people trying to sell their labor power that is blocked um, and in very violent ways. so
1: yeah, this is a great point, and I think this is you know something that's very strong about your book that shifts sort of these understandings that prioritize you know the us or if we think more broadly the first world as um you know the ultimate place that people want to go to um so i really appreciate it about your book um and also your your answer about triads made me think about family which you brought up um like when we understand the sort of family relations um, in the zona, how does it open up what family comes to mean, especially within this sort of moral economy of the borderlands?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the familial relationships that are forged there, I mean, some of them, are, I mean, there are some sex workers who have their children close by, um, but most of those people are also have crack addictions and um, were judged for some of the other sex by some of the other sex workers. Many of the sex workers fostered what they call double lives um, to protect their families kind of sp- from the horse stigma, and they would foster these double lives both through space, often migrating far from their families to work in renaissance, to work in sex work, as well as through um, not telling them what they did for a living. But that was also to protect themselves from potential rejection from family members, but also a way to kind of keep um, the horse stigma from affecting their families. Um, so there was a great deal of kind of, I'd say debate. I don't know if it was really a debate that people were engaging in, but I kind of, I write about it as a kind of conflict between these two different ways of dealing with the horse stigma and dealing with the fact that a lot of these women were single mothers that needed to support their families. A lot of them were working for their families, Um, but then they were also so judged um as already always already not being good mothers so there was a way that in which the kind of virgin whore dichotomy mapped on to notions of um, what it is to be a good and bad mother um, so the sex workers are really in a double bind because if they um if they engaged in sex work then they could uh, they were seen to be not providing um, adequate moral care to their children. Um, but beyond those kinds of relationships, um, certainly thinking about, yeah, sex workers and pimps as being family members, thinking about there were sex workers who imagined themselves to be, who called, who called other sex workers their sisters or um, daughters. Um, and there were also familial kind of kinship relations created between sex workers and missionaries, too.
1: Yeah, and when you talk about these relationships, um, these intimacies, you point out that there's something queer about them, uh, especially in the borderlands, um, and I was wondering if you could speak to the queerness of the intimacies we see, and I'm also wondering where do you locate yourself in these webs of intimacy?
0: Yeah. So I'm using the term queer in a way that's not other to heterosexuality, but that's other to heteronormativity, kind of following Michael Warner, um, as well as white middle class heteronormativity um, following Kathy Cohen. Um, And the sex workers are certainly queer in this way. Um, They're subjected to the whore stigma um, and to regulation by the state in the name of the public good. Um, And generally speaking, the intimacies forged in the prostitution zone, whether with clients or with other sex workers or with an anthropologist or with missionaries had to be kind of cloaked in secrecy. Um, But I'm also kind of doing a queering in terms of my analysis and the way that I'm looking at things. Um, So I also look at the missionaries' relationships with sex workers and God as queer, um, not only by kind of applying polyamorous concepts to them, but also thinking how they had hope for these queer futures in which they might eventually live with and love sex workers instead of husbands. And um, there was also a particular way that some of the missionaries conceived of sexuality um, as not just kind of physical acts of sex, but also something that was practiced in the spiritual realm um, through serving people. So For certain missionaries at certain points, they really thought that they would be serving sex workers instead of husbands, like as kind of a lifelong goal. Um, And in terms of where I fit myself in these kind of queer intimacies, so one thing that I'm writing about now that ended up being um, that there was a small part of the book about it, but I'm now kind of expanding it and and thinking more about it, is the kind of triangulation between me as an anthropologist and sex workers and missionaries. And so I was an outsider in both groups. Um, I was occasionally mistaken for a sex worker or a missionary, depending upon who I w- was with. Um, but when I was with the sex workers alone, um, we tended to talk and joke about sex similar to the way that I do with uh, most of my friends. Um, when I was with missionaries alone, we talked and joked in a way that was not about sex, um, in a way similar to how I do with my um, Christian family members. Um and missionaries were generally trying to engage in conversations with sex workers that were not so much about sex, but more about their families and asking them if they missed their children. And um, But when I was in mixed group at a certain point after I'd been there for quite a while, once I was in mixed groups of sex workers and missionaries, sometimes sex workers would start engaging in sexual joking in ways similar to, to how they did when we were alone. And there were often some really funny yet extremely uncomfortable moments in which that happened. And it there were certainly times in which the missionaries got really uncomfortable and this even created some methodological problems for me. Um, but I'm thinking about these kinds of moments of like joking and talking about sex um, or kind of sexually explicit behavior as um kind of raunch stances and how these produced moments of joy, pleasure, and discomfort um, that worked to in some ways destabilize, even momentarily, um, these ideas that these are like stable subjects, um, you know, that sex workers and missionaries are these like very different stable subjects. So I think that that, that kind of way of joking um and i think that me as an anthropologist who was kind of an outsider i kind of was good to think with in that way and i kind of destabilized some of those those things
1: wow thank you very much for this great answer um i was wondering especially since you know many of our listeners are um are emerging anthropologists or field workers. I was wondering if you'd mind speaking about these moments of discomfort or, you know, methodological problems that you faced and sort of whether these have been generative for you or what tactics you've adopted to um continue with your work.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I think that those moments they're so hard when they're happening. But they do, like, if you analyze them, if you think about them enough, I think they're often, like, really key sources of insight. Um, And this, it's funny because I didn't really deeply analyze these moments until 10 years later. And now I'm realizing that there's so much more to (laughs) to say about them. Um, But, yeah, it it was really hard to to figure out how to act ethically in these situations too um in terms of like which version of myself to present to people and how does that line up with both you know their comfort levels and you know what I think is an ethical way to act so um a lot of that I I don't know yeah I, I have hesitated, or I, I don't necessarily always feel like I did the right thing at each given moment but I do think that from, yeah, from the times that we mess up, certainly and the times in which we're uncomfortable, other people are uncomfortable. Those are often the times that we really learn something.
1: Yeah, I I think this is a very important point to say and name, uh, especially, you know, for those of us who are emerging into the profession. And, you know, on that note, I want to continue a little bit uh, on your methods and methodologies. Um, One thing that was striking to me about your book was the creative ways you found to foreground your collaborators' authorship in their own narratives. For example, you feature memoirs or blog posts in your book, uh, which is not something I see very often, uh, personally. Um, So I'm wondering... What roles you foresee these forms of storytelling um, play in borderland ethnographies? And, you know, how did these methods enrich your work? And even, you know, how did it occur to you to incorporate them in the book or in your fieldwork?
0: This is a great question because I was like... Um so tempted to come up with some really like great smart reason of like showing like why I I made this decision. Um, (laughs) really it was, I mean, to tell you the truth, it was in part, okay. At the beginning, when I first got to the field, the main missionary that I wanted to talk to was out of, country for a few months and so i couldn't talk to her so i read her blog and like take notes about it that's part that was part of what happened um but i mean later i got to you know interview her and spend plenty of time with her so i had plenty of that Um, but i did find that actually the kind of i was i think i had access to a slightly a different vision of what she was doing through her blog than I did when she was speaking to me because she was really addressing a different audience. And I think that that audience ended up being really important for me to, to think about. Um, and it ended up being part of the analysis, too. Um, and the sex workers who share their memoirs with me, it just, I mean, they just, one had, what, um, La Cubana had already started writing a memoir for a missionary. And then she wrote like part two for me and then part three for the missionary. And it was just such a wonderful wealth of information too. Um, and then um, Lucia wanted to give me her testimonial in which she did an interview, but I just found these to be so rich and that's why I decided to use them. Um, and I had access to them, but I think that you're, yeah, this is a great question, but I think that ultimately I think that when anth- what anthropology does well, or what I see to be good anthropology <laughs> when it's doing what it does well, I think that it's really foregrounding the narratives of people and their ways of understanding the world and then using that to as a baseline to then understand other things and to challenge the way that we see the world. So for me, as when I'm writing as an anthropologist, it's really hard for me. The part that's the hardest for me and the part that was the hardest for me once I did fieldwork was then putting myself into it. So, I mean, after all these years, I put myself into it, I put my analysis into it, but like really... I, when I was doing fieldwork, I was really thinking about it in terms of understanding people's point of view and getting their narratives. And I tried to leave those in as much as I could while still making my own arguments.
1: (laughs) This is very helpful. And I love that you bring up. You know, question of access and these electronic forms, because especially you know in the current conjuncture uh, with the COVID pandemic, um, this is a very productive way to think about it. And I love that you bring up this this dimension of who's the audience, because I can like I can't imagine you know the memoirs that um, women wrote for missionaries would be, like, the same that they would write addressing you, right?
0: Yeah, that's a really funny thing. But they were kind of similar, because I think that they were kind of... I don't know. Well, one of... So, Kubana really wrote it. She was often, you know, high when she was writing some parts of it. Um, and it was pretty uncensored, I think, um, in terms of, like, the kinds of things that she... Yeah, she, she did not... I don't think that she changed the her her focus or the way that she wrote when she wrote for me or for a missionary the other woman lucia she was like a born-again christian she had a very specific narrative that she gave whether she was talking to me or a missionary or one she was like once interviewed on the, the radio um so yeah it's it is kind of interesting i bet a lot of the other sex workers though like these were maybe um, specific cases, but I bet that a lot of the other sex workers probably would have written very different things for me versus for the missionaries. That's a great point.
1: Another, another point that I find very provocative about your work is how you think about stories and narratives as means of value creation. And, you know, I guess my question will be sort of, One that is triangulated, uh, if you may, um, because I'm wondering how this value creation works between missionaries and sex workers, but also anthropologists, like the section that was about, um, you know, missionaries asking, Um, sex workers for their narratives, and you discussing that through value, it was so uncannily similar to the work of anthropologists and, you know, the critiques of being extractive about sort of quote-unquote data or people's stories, so I'm wondering um, if you think about these together...
0: Yeah, that's that is uh, yeah, that's a really great question and um, observation. I certainly think there's a great um, parallel between the way that these missionaries were collecting and circulating stories and the way that I'm ultimately doing the same thing, right? Um, and I guess we're both, in a certain way, at least these missionaries and most anthropologists are kind of that's our kind of the business that we're in, right? Um, and. Um, I think there's also a sort of parallel in the kind of intimacies there too like I was just reading um, Margot Weiss's um, article about um, kind of the erotics of ethnographic encounters and I'm thinking about how um, the kind of like longing to know and be close to um, people and to learn about them and how this becomes it's part of what we do like for a living as well as you know there's something definitely happening in those moments too Um, but yeah and so for the missionaries I look at how they create value by like spreading God's influence and love and fame, right? Throughout time and space um, by um, collecting and circulating these sex workers stories um, and circulating them to their larger publics. Um, and then as they s- circulate these to their Christian audiences, um, it makes the audiences then feel closer to God too, right? Which then further spreads his influence. And this is the way that they create value. Um, but yeah, so I definitely see a big parallel in what we're doing. But my question for myself is really like, what what value am I? Am I trying to extend or expand? That's a big question, Mark, Um, I should probably reflect upon myself in in that way. (laughs) And our discipline, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is wonderful. And, you know, through this value creation that goes beyond the missionaries and goes to their Sort of Christian audiences. It even shows how much, um, how much sort of non-linear the directionality of you know U.S. Mexico is and like the migration is. Um. So that's that's really wonderful. Um. So my last question for you is what is next? Uh, What are some new questions, issues or projects you're currently thinking about? And I am sure that these are rather um, difficult questions considering the times we're in, but
0: Thank you um, I mean it, the, the most truth the most truthful answer is that I spend a lot of time you know creating zoom lecturettes for my for my students for my classes now um, but I was supposed to actually be in Mexico City um, doing research for another project um, about gender and sexuality related activism um, and I'm not there yet because of the pandemic but I hope to get there soon. Um, I'm also working on um, a project about gender and fitness culture in the US, which I've been thinking about for a few years. I'm also really excited right now thinking about a new album for Kegels for Hegel, um, which is a, we're a conceptual art project that writes raunchy love songs to philosophers and other thinkers. Um, And so our first, um, our first album was called Fucking with Philosophers. And we make music videos, you can find them on YouTube. Um, It's a collaborative project. Um. And um, we're now working on a new Queer Kinship album, which I'm super excited about. So I've been like, any time that I'm not, um, yeah, doing my real work, I <laughs> I'm brainstorming about song lyrics and, and collaborations. And so, yeah, if anyone wants to work on the Queer Kinship album, you're all welcome.
1: <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Luna, for joining us uh, and for your insights.
0: Thank you, Alisa. It's so, so nice to meet you. And this is wonderful.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, so in closing, I am Alisa Arjan. This discussion of Love and the Drug War, Selling Sex and Finding Jesus on the Mexico-US border, published by the University of Texas Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois Chicago.